Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. I'm Chantelle. I'm Tiso. And each episode we take things that have annoyed us from the news or from our daily lives and try and put them into a kind of sociological context. So, Chantelle, you're going to kick off this week. What are you annoyed about? I guess what I'm going to talk about contributes to themes that we've discussed in previous podcasts about um, subtle racisms that manifest within the media, public discourse and everyday life. And I'm going to talk about the way Raheem Sterling is being currently treated by um, the media. So Raheem Sterling is a footballer. Um, He's just been called up to play for England in the World Cup. And he has become newsworthy because, I mean, it's not the first time, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but um, why he's in the news at the moment is because he has a tattoo on his leg of a machine gun. The media don't like that. They say that he is being irresponsible because he's a um, footballer that young people look up to. And given the fact that there is gang violence at the moment taking over London that he should know better to then to have a gun on his leg tattooed. The reason why Raheem has chosen, like we all are entitled to choices of what we do to our bodies, um, to have a tattoo on his leg, it's got two symbolic values to him. The first value is that it's on the legs that he shoots with. So it's he calls it his gut like his leg like his gun, and second meaning is that his dad was shot in Jamaica when he was two years old. So and he vowed to never touch a gun, and the gun represents the death of his father. The media have just acted in a way like they do with so many black successful celebrities when they do something which is out of the ordinary or they just, they think is deviant. They, they treat these people in a racist way and they attach um, stereotypical tropes to blackness, whether that be around surrounding deviance, whether that be surrounding hypersexuality. And I just think it's really important when we see headlines like this um, that we make sure there's people on the sidelines like us saying that this is racism, this is racism at play, this is how stereotypes manifest about people of colour, about black people, about black men. Um, I just want to say as well, like this isn't the first time The Sun in particular has targeted Raheem Sterling. So they um, ran like a front page article about him buying an expensive sink for his mum. So like... Sorry, that was a headline. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. That was the headline. I'm pretty sure. He bought an expensive sink. Like like, he basically did up his mum's house. Yeah. Um, He comes from a working class background as well. So it's obviously he is now a wealthy man as a footballer. And they just hate the way he spends money. Like, it was either, it was them having a go at him for buying an expensive sink. And then another time having a go at him in the paper for travelling via EasyJet. What? As in he shouldn't be because he's rich. Or just like describing him as looking after the pennies using EasyJet, even (laughs) though he earns £200,000 per week. Like, and I guess it's looking at from a sociological perspective, the way race and racism manifest in language, in media and in discourse, like, it's so subtle and, like, it would be so easy for someone to say, I mean, that's not racist. Like, it is ridiculous. Like, why is he buying his mum that sink? But it's the fact that who they target mm. and who is allowed to, to behave in a way which is seen by them as deviant or by them as not towards the not normative 
yeah so that just really pissed me off like and and even like FIFA are getting involved like saying oh we need to look into this particularly with the World Cup coming up like do FIFA we want such like do we want do we want someone is it the FIFA or the FA yeah just do, like, oh, one FA of the, is the football association yeah, one of the, so that's England possibly and <laughs> like, Tisa, uh, you're a man <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't like football. But yeah, so basically just saying like we need to look into this. Do we want someone that's got a gun on their leg representing us at the World Cup? And it's like, fucking hell. If he was white, like... Well, also, isn't the World Cup in Russia? Yeah. I mean, given that Putin is president of like a gun... Like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, there's just so priorities. Ma- there's just so much hypocrisy in it. And it's just like, it's just black people. It's so easy for us to be celebrated for our sporting achievements, winning competitions, etc. But as soon as we do something that white people do, then it's like, oh, like, know your place. 100%. I agree. <laughs> I, I, I fully agree. And I don't like the fact that when you perform, or when he performs, he's held as a paragon. Mm. What's, what does paragon mean? Of, of, of virtue, of goodness, and then if he does anything, like he's the example, yeah, he's, he's the he's example. example yeah. yeah. So this is how you should behave and perform, and then if he does something outside that, it tarnishes it. Yeah. And that's reflective of all black people, obviously. Yeah. So I was reading an article um, by someone at Birkbeck, which was saying like, you know, it's the same with like Meghan Markle's, and you know, everyone's like going on or about how amazing she is at the moment. And, you know, like, oh, isn't it wonderful that Prince Harry's chosen a black woman and how progressive and blah, blah, blah. And, like, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Article was saying, you know, what happens when the media turns? Because this is how the media works, you know. Like, yeah. they build someone up, they go on about how great they are, and then they take them down. And so at what point does Meghan Markle's blackness become a problem? Because this is what happens to all these sports players. Yeah. Like... Their, see- their blackness is seen as great until they do something that conforms to society's understanding of black men as violent. Yeah, and like it's the same happened with Mo Farah, like with the mm. um, like he's like, oh Mo, golden Mo, like Mo does it for Britain again. And as soon as he's possibly getting accused of doping, then it's like, oh, mischievous, classic, classic. taking drugs. Yeah. But you see, uh, what's quite interesting is, say someone like Frank Bruno. Yeah, most who Frank, Frank Bruno, Bruno, Frank Bruno boxer. the boxer. So, most in the black community would see him as white. So he takes on the kind of the kind of identity and the values of whiteness, how he talks, how he acts, mm. where he lived, and so white English people really liked him. Mm. But he wasn't really that. He was liked in the black community, but not that's not to the same degree. Because he was seen as so, like conforming yeah. and appeasing the Correct. white majority. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's about why can't these people just be themselves? You're not you're not allowed to be yourself if you're a famous if you're a famous person of colour. I mean if you're a person of colour in general, but I just think it just highlights it more when it's celebrities as well. You're not allowed to just be a person. A person. But I, I think this is I think this is true of not just like obviously in race, but in, also in sexuality and gender. So like what's that guy's name? Tom Daly, the Oh yeah, 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 the diet. So he came like a I suppose like the, he almost became overnight the spokesperson for like gay sportsmen like coming yeah, yeah, out, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's like, did he want that? He's just been himself. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know who's to blame. Is it the media? Is this what they do? But is it the, me- the media does this? It creates tropes and stereotypes because yeah. it's easy for it's easy for them for the masses to kind of absorb and 
you know so I don't I think know. It, I think it comes down to that issue which has cropped up a lot in our conversations about the importance of representation and when you have so few representatives and and in certain industries it means that people become spokespeople but when you have like I wouldn't say that um, black people and ethnic minorities are underrepresented in the sports world because that's the acceptable mm. profession for people of colour. I guess it's difficult, isn't it? It's like... It makes me think, like, the whole... Uh, he's an irresponsible black man because mm. he's got a gun tattoo and, you know, doesn't he know about gun violence? That was the link that was drawn, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, Ga- Gun violence is, uh, and gang violence yeah. is... Uh, seen as being on the increase in London and the way it's been reported in the media and like how could he not be aware of that he's got this tattoo on his leg and it's like I don't know it's just interesting how on the one hand you've got the Windrush generation and like kind of noble selfless um, country serving black people Some, like this is the, how the Windrush generation yeah. is being portrayed yeah now they're being portrayed now, yeah um, obviously they haven't been for a while versus the kind of gang um, mm. culture like and sort of blackness mm. as deviance thing and um, we were just talking about how the government has just said that gang members are now going to be treated like terror suspects which means having like no representation no right to know what the charges are against you being held in remand indefinitely yeah like all these kind of like horrendous human rights abuses you know, how all these things kind of uh, coalesce as, like, the way blackness gets presented in the media and in government and in policy and all these things is as a problem mm-hmm. and then all of that gets piled onto this one guy. Yeah. Also, I think it's representative Definitely. of how governments respond, especially the UK government respond to youth culture. Yeah. So if you go back to the early rave culture this is what they did the same way, demonising people, criminalising places where they go and mm. acts, and basically being very draconian Yeah. in their response. So treating, like with that example there, with the treating the, the drill kids as uh, terror suspects. Yeah, so yeah drill music is drill being music, to blame yeah. for, violence, for violence. When it's nothing to do with... And this is the thing with the Windrush thing. It's like, on the one hand, you're being like, oh, poor little old man, poor like Windrush guy. He came over here and he worked in the NHS. Paid his taxes. Paid his tax, paid his dues. But his grandson or his great-grandson who has like seen the systematic racism that's been enacted against his family and is like, fuck this, uh, and listens to drill music, is a gang member and is violent and a criminal. Like, those two things are seen as opposite ends of the spectrum and in no way related to each other. Yeah. I, like I said, I, I, I just think when the government acts so draconian, like I said, it's it's once it's similar to when they don't understand youth culture and they're not looking, not willing to understand it because it's more complex, more yeah. difficult. So they attack it and seek to contain it and to show the public that they're doing something about the symptom as they see it, so violence. It's so ironic as well because it's like, the paper and also like Piers Morgan went on him as well, obviously. And it's so it's so mental how like they'll be like, Oh, you're not thinking about the example you're setting, um, you're 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 making like kids look up to you, look what they're doing, they're all gonna stab each other up now, they're all gonna shoot each other. And it's like, do you not think by going in on a black guy who's a successful footballer, 
is not is going to make black kids feel even more alienated by an by an establishment. Yeah, but that's like, the point, isn't it? The point is not I to know, make black kids I, feel included. I know, but like, <laughs> they're like, it's the way they go at him and say, yeah, "You're yeah, making yeah. black kids like go this way," and like at the same time, you're you're li- they're literally doing that to black people. Like mm. it makes like that's that. I don't know why that story. I, I don't. I have no. Apart from my skin color, I have no relation to right. Raheem Sterling, but. I feel really like I felt when I read that I was like fucking hell they do no one gives a shit about people of colour but you see what, <laughs> what, what, what happens me is off. you see that narrative of of um, representing yourself better because you represent the community yeah. it's internalised so I would internalise that and I'll, try, I'll tell young kids you can't behave like this because you're being judged and you're always being judged mm. so if I go to a corporate environment so you try to not disguise or mask, but you try to tone down all elements that you seem to be is street. Mm. So you're aware of this. It's not something that we don't know. Raheem Study knows. Mm-hmm. I know. It's something that's out there that you are being judged. So you try to tone down your things. And so any tattoos you have, any rings, even though your white friend might have a tattoo, it's different if you have a tattoo. My friends that got gold teeth, they have to behave in a certain way. They have to take the gold teeth out. Even though it's something that most kids do now. Mm-hmm. But you know, as a black man, these things have been internalising. So you, You've got a target. You have yeah. a target on your back. And yeah. it's just waiting. Someone, everyone is stood behind you, mainly the white people, waiting for you to do something which can in any way align... Uh, that action can be aligned with a stereotype about black people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A trope. A trope that's sometimes about perceived aggression. Yeah. Um, hypersexuality. Mm. Those are the two main ones, really. Mm. So what do you say? Like, you you give talks... Like, you so, gave a one so, for the Stephen Lawrence Foundation. Yeah. Was, so when I speak to young kids, so I try to make them aware that of the context of where they are. So certain environments, how they communicate with people is important. So if they go in to speak to someone, how they normally speak to their friends, and speak in a, in, in a street vernacular, they sometimes they won't be understood they'd be misunderstood mm-hmm. and their words would be misinterpreted and their, and their actions and their body language. So I'm trying to tell them it's about being context aware, aware who your audience is, mm-hmm. not to change themselves, just aware who, who you're speaking to. And isn't it funny, like on the flip side of that, like fucking old boys club, Etonian <laughs> men are allowed to go around harassing women, speaking in obscene ways on university campuses mm-hmm. and black people have to be aware of the way they are presenting themselves, have to be aware, aware of the way they're talking just so they can get by in life, let alone in that, mm. in that social circumstance. Yeah, like, but because they're, those auditoriums or whatever are seen as, like, people with quirks. Oh, God, yeah. You're allowed to be quirky if you're white, aren't you? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Whereas, like, you know, it's not seen as, like, an inherent private school thing mm-hmm. or like posh guy thing you know what I mean it's mm-hmm. always seen as like oh well he's just a bit handsy ha 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 like <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and the, it's like it's not even they're getting away with it because there's nothing to get away with like they just hit the jackpot mm-hmm. in, <laughs> in terms of like yeah in life so they could do what they want but that it's, it's an interesting one Tiso because I've been thinking about this a lot in my research is it important for us to prepare young people for how racist society is? Or, like, as in what you're talking about, telling them about thinking about how they're presenting themselves? Or is or are we adding to the issues here? Do you know, do you know I, what I mean? I, I thought that myself. I, yeah. I still, I still abide by what my mum and my grand 
book taught me is to race is not the preeminent issue it should occupy your mind you go where you want to go because that's what you've been brought up to do so you do the best that you do you can do mm. and get the job that you want to get because you can do yeah and so I say to kids there's multiple examples you can point to now like successful lawyers doctors people who are black you can we, even be universities we, Melissa yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and so I try to see I try to get them to understand that through who I am, you still yeah. can be yourself and still go to those places. Yeah, it's, it, I guess we have more, we have, even though representation is still an issue, we have more examples now where that we can point to for young people. But how do you explain to young people why articles like Raheem Serling are what, still okay? Why and make why? them understand there's a, there's a structure that is, that's in place. Yeah. There's always a structure. But it's about navigating that structure. And you, and you can never get you can never get that structure and still maintain your identity, but it's it's a trick. But I try to tell them like it took me a long time to understand that. So I'm trying to make them understand that you can do this in a short amount of time and make less mistakes than I did. And so it's about making just making them clear and aware of what what that structure is and that how that structure changes over time, mm-hmm. and it's different in different places, but there's always a structure. So ultimately, to be themselves and to carry themselves in a way that they. It's good for you in a way that that their that their parents would be proud of, and that's the first thing you make sure. If it's if you're not, if you're doing the thing that makes your parents proud, that's the right thing to be doing. If you can't tell your mum or dad about what you're doing, then it's the wrong thing. But do we prepare them for society spitting them back out once they've? So what if you you're playing by all the rules? Do we prepare for some to prepare them? For someone, someone's going to say, call you the N-word in public, and they're going to think it's a joke. Someone's going to write an article about you if you get a tattoo that they think is deviant. Like, do we prepare them but, for, yeah. re- like... I, but I wouldn't say in, in those terms. I'd yeah. say you're going to encounter setbacks, but you have to have staying power. So you have to be... That's Stephen Fryer there. Sorry, yeah. what's staying power? Chantal? Oh, you've got to read it. No, Tisa it's, 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 oh, tell, tell okay. us for the podcast. Staying power is a book that Tisa introduced me to, which I definitely should have come across earlier on in my academic career, which was one of the first yeah. historical slash sociological books about yeah. Black Britain. Before David Olasuga, he basically did a book in about 1992, was it? Yeah, I think it's the 80s. Oh, 80s, yeah, earlier. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it, is it like a popular, it's not an academic book? Yeah, but really, it's. it's it's academic. It's academic. It is yeah, academic. Yeah. Oh, okay, but it's like one of the first kind of. It's re- it's a really like they've, they've got quite a few copies yeah. here, and it's been reprinted more recently. And Paul Gilroy's done an introduction in it as well. Cool. Yeah. But, but yeah, I, like I said, I obviously it's in the press at the moment, but the Windrush generation, so it got me thinking about my grand and speaking to them, and so I asked my grand, how did she prepare herself, or had any immigrants prepare yourself to come to somewhere where you're socially and economically at the bottom of the pile? You have to have staying power. You have to. You know you're going to encounter hostility. You know that. But you cannot let that deter you. So you, you just continue. And eventually, eventually, now it takes some time. Mm. And it's painful and it's not a nice process. I think what's really important to say to young people that are racialized and that have to watch incidents like this with like their favourite footballer being smeared by the sun is that you need to have your people and you need to be able to you do need to have, be able to have people that you can vent to that will understand your experiences I think that's definitely something which I didn't have grown up which really like it made my staying power a lot harder like it made it much more 
emotional yeah. and much more like physically draining. But like now that I make sure I surround myself with some people that are outside of those worlds that aren't going to racialize me all the time, mm. it makes it a lot easier. So I think, yeah, if, if you learn that from a like young age, I think that could help. Yeah, I feel like I said the, the key thing is, I think most ethnic minorities are aware of structures. Mm. If you're from an ethnic minority group or an oppressed group, you're aware that there's structures in place and people will behave to you in a certain way. Now, it's about how you navigate those places. Now, sometimes, sometimes it, these battles are not worth fighting. There's loads of them. Mm. But it's the big ones. and You've got to choose the right ones, man. Mm. On that note, another battle worth fighting. Tiso, what are you talking about today? Right. I want to talk about... Tommy, Tommy Robertson. So, do you think is it, Stephen? Is, it, is that his stage name? Yeah, Tommy oh, Robertson. Oh wow! It's not his real name. His real name is. I think it's Stephen Jackson Lennon or something like that. Supposed to say I think it's Yennon. Oh, I thought you said Lennon, and I was no, no, like, no. that would be amazing. His first name Stephen, but um, okay. So he. Why does he have a fake name? <laughs> I think it's a bit more catchy, isn't it? Really. Instagram. I think he's branded himself. Yeah, so that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So um, I did not know that. That's fascinating so um he was arrested this week for live streaming outside a court case of an asian grooming gang so this is the second time he's been he's done this so he was charged arrested and sent to prison for 13 months so the response by his supporters was to go to downing street scream paul scream that he's a political prisoner that he's been silenced this is against free speech. So I say he's a political prisoner? Yeah. What so, a fucking insult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so um, my interest in this is kind of twofold. My, my research is about the resurgence of the far right, especially in the UK and more broadly in Europe and, well, Western Europe and not just Western Europe, Basically, the globe. <laughs> I was just going to try to limit, but yeah, basically, the globe, the research of the far right and the use of the internet in that rise. So, added to that is the idea of free speech. Now, this is a big topic on the far right, believe it or not. So, and we spoke, we spoke about it on previous podcasts yeah. as well. My last position was like, I thought people needed to be a bit more in tune with the new reality of being a digital citizen. So, kind of understanding that there is consequence to where we are, it. So to paraphrase the judge and paraphrase myself, like freedom comes with responsibility. So you cannot just say what you want, but we're not, I think the far right is, are sophisticated enough to know they understand that. It's a bit more nuanced than that. The debate is who gets to decide what is harmful and what is not. So one of the key one of the key arguments put forward in the alt-right playbook is to use rhetoric and argument in such a way that you will cause the person to lose control. So they will say stuff to you that is quite inflammatory and often not linked to the previous point. So they'll say stuff to particularly wind you up, Mm. say stuff that's quite offensive, but should you silence someone for just doing that? Is it all right to silence people? What did the, so just bringing it back to Tommy Robinson, and mm-hmm. he was obviously outside mm-hmm. the court and he was saying, we need to know the identities of these people mm-hmm. and that there's an issue with Muslim men raping white women, which is really problematic in itself. But what did the judge say? 
so when, ju- when so, he sent him that sent Tommy so the judge said something to be like with freedom is it covers responsibility mm-hmm. okay right but see this is the interesting thing so Tommy so because we have a an issue about protecting minorities we as a society are quite we react quite badly to when someone says names a group mm-hmm. now say if there is a do problem, you think we always do no, sorry say that again we react badly we, sometimes when we, we get we're quite reactive when someone says something about a group a particular group now we say if we well, say like an oppressed group an oppressed group yeah. yeah so we want to protect the minorities so this is this is well, in, well emblazoned in liberal, liberal philosophy so as Mill kind of said we want to protect the minority so from the yeah. tyranny of the majority yeah because true democracy would mean that minority voices get totally Correct. erased yeah so we have a, we tend to we become alarmed and sometimes we become quite react, reactionary so the far right know this so this is what they they play on this mm-hmm. so how do you combat something like this how do you prevent someone like Tommy Robinson from becoming a martyr when he says something that he might be putting out something that's a true issue mm-hmm. but because of our because of our own values, we're kind of hamstrung by our own values. We want freedom of speech, but we also want to protect minorities. How do you prevent that? How do yeah, you prevent someone just putting that? Like, to ignore him is, is akin to justifying. Yeah, basically, yeah? to ignore him to allow to ignore him allows that kind of narrative to to grow. Mm-hmm. And I, it's, sometimes it's not sufficiently challenged, in space, especially on the internet. It's not sufficiently challenged. In spaces like Facebook or Twitter, because they usually discuss in echo chambers, so it's one opinion and no one, no one. Well, and also, I mean, Twitter particularly sort of exists on the basis that everyone has an opinion. Everyone's opinion is, has <laughs> yeah, equal value. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I've seen. So if you allow him, not if you don't say anything, you allow it to kind of fester and grow. And sometimes, like I said, from history, we've seen when these attitudes have grown and flourished. We've seen people act on them, and you feel it in your own life if you're from an oppressed group. But on the flip side, if you try to silence him, you play into the hands because the government is trying to silence someone, and, you, and the way they run it is you're trying to silence me because I'm telling the truth. Yeah. So uh, yeah. you create an alternative narrative to the mainstream one, and from a kind of the danger is even when you start creating those narratives, it creates what they, it, for me an epistemolo- epistemological problem. What's an epistemological problem? <laughs> like the idea of challenging knowledge established knowledge Mm -hmm. so they will start saying stuff like Muhammad was a paedophile yeah so that is a problem as in the prophet so the prophet Muhammad is a paedophile now that's this is this is wide currency on on the far right now given Muhammad was around in the 8th century AD Sleeping with children is not uncommon. Yeah. Well, yeah, the whole concept of paedophilia yeah, it, is a modern, it, it is modern, modern morality. Yeah. Correct. And so you're reading history incorrectly, but... It's revisionist. Exactly. Yeah. And so you're creating this problem here. By, when we challenge, if we censor them, it allows those narratives to grow. I feel like, I'm just, just really stuck in my head what you guys are talking about, about us not addressing these people. I feel like we saw some of the early stages of what we've got now, not actually that long ago. When was it that Nick Griffin went on Question Time? I remember when I was at school. Oh, yeah. And it was like... Was it, that like it, it was 2008? 2008 or 2009. And it was like, even people, like, 
people where I went to school what no were not political but even people at my school were talking about it and it's like oh do you see Nick Griffin like chatting like being racist like he's like he's a joke like it wasn't taken he was a joke on the panel but then suddenly Nigel Farage how many times has he been on Question Time the most ever like yeah. a ridiculous amount but there was something really there's something really interesting about that moment when the BMP sort of started to fall off they started to lose more votes and like you had the surge of UKIP but there was something there's something really interesting about how we ignored what he was saying mm. not that we need to need no, to take on board was, what he's saying but it was a, it was seen as a joke but actually there would have been people sat at home being like hmm well no but I think what's really interesting about that is if we if it is around that time if you enjoy this podcast you should definitely listen to Renny Addo Lodge's podcast it's amazing and yeah. it's so good and uh, there's been a lot of kind of academic discussion of this but hers is the first kind of popular um, kind of taking down of uh, the BBC's white season yeah. which we may have mentioned on here before but it would have been around the same time that BBC ran this white season yeah. or like not that long after mm-hmm. um, that they then had Nick Griffin on so even though the BBC itself like not only are they giving him a platform, but they're also peddling this narrative that the white working class has been disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. And they are, like, given how powerful the BBC is, the fact that they put him in something that's so central to their news production yeah. sort of machine, and then, okay, Nick Griffin then sort of falls off, like mm-hmm. the BNP fall away, but then you have UKIP and then Nigel Farage being centre mm-hmm. stage of question time for such a long time. Putting these people front and centre of news coverage and news production has a huge impact in terms of justifying them. But then to say, oh, but it's all part of free speech. No, but they're part of free speech, so they're allowed to say yeah. inflammatory stuff. But then people like I'm not try- I'm not in any way defending Tommy Robinson, but these people that follow Tommy Robinson become this subculture of, of the martyrs. Of the martyrs. But then at the same time, people like Nigel Farage and Nick Griffin, they've been saying the sorts of things that they're saying in more subliminal establishment language. So it's like you've got two different like branches of the far. Well, also, right, is Tommy of- Robinson working class? Uh, I don't know. Because, like, but what is what Nigel Farage and Nick Griffin have in common the, is they both the, uh, are established. Establishment. So Tommy Robinson, he, he would his identify his background. He's a football. He's a football hooligan, essentially. Yeah. yeah. That's where that's where he came from. So, so he, he ends up in prison. But no. But so he speaks to the people. Uh-huh. But what you're seeing is a repackaging of those ideas and. Nigel Farage, it's all part of the same thing, and they all want the same goal. But it's just a repackaging of these ideas. But what's more important is that the idea of free speech that these people feel that their speech is limited not just not Tommy Robertson but just their followers the public mm. because they feel that the liberal media and political correctness hamstrings them from their freedom of speech so they cannot say I'm proud to be English for example that's how they feel mm. and so they feel if they feel that they be branded a racist or belong to some far right party or if they voted Brexit and say it loud that they, people might think they're racist. Or, for example, they can't sing a nursery rhyme because they feel that they, that they'd be blamed as a racist. Oh my God, can I just say, and I have to say this, and I'm really sorry, listeners, but my family will watch it, so I have to watch it, and I do quite enjoy it, but I've been watching Britain's Got Talent. Oh my God. So there's a group of contestants on there that are women that are doing... They're called the D-Day Darlings, and they're doing, like, a tribute to... Um, the best room? Yeah, yeah, and, like, they're singing about... And it's, like, it's basically, like, a Brexit 
love story sort of thing. Like, it's really frightening. How old and then, are they? Like, middle-aged women, but they're doing... Like, you know how they the women used to sing, like, in... In back in the day, you in like mean the like war. kind of the Andrews sisters, sort of like close yeah. harmony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of. So they were doing that, and then on the same show, a guy who's a comedian did like really edgy comedy. And basically, so my point is, Amanda Holden, one of the judges, goes in this country now. We're all we're, all we're concerned about is political correctness. It's really good to have someone like you on the stage. And I was like, what, good to have a racist. Whoa. I can't remember, it wasn't racism, but it was definitely like... No, 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 it but was basically in... what she's saying is, in a world where you're not allowed to be racist, yeah. where it's never been racist in the I world. was like, this, it's just really interesting, and it's like perspective, because you're Amanda saying... Holland's white, right? Just yeah, 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 Amanda Holland's <laughs> white. I don't know who she is. Um, it's really interesting what you're saying, Tiso, because about people feeling like they can't say, I'm proud to be English or whatever... I feel like I've never been around so many people telling me how proud they are of their country. Like, as as a person of colour, like, as a black woman, I feel like I'm, like, bombarded with messages of patriotism but, um, every day this, at the moment. This, this is, but this is the interesting thing. I think, again, essentially my study's looking more at more white people and whiteness rather than the other way around, usually. And so I'm trying to understand how they feel about all this. So... This idea of not being able to speak, not being able to express yourself, which is a key value of our society, the freedom of speech. If you feel that if you if you feel that you can't express yourself, and what happens? What happens to these people? It's almost so they feel like sometimes they feel like you can't even be, be themselves. So, for example, most of my mates, they're not particularly racist. I wouldn't say they're racist, but they would say they don't they feel awkward saying certain stuff. About certain topics. Well, say uh, say to us what your friend asked you the other day. So he asked me um, about how does it feel being black. He doesn't understand about racism. He doesn't really understand. And didn't he say? You said he said to you, um, "What's so, it like? What's it like to be a victim of racism?" So he asked me about about being watched. How does it feel being watched? Sometimes, and I, I tried to explain what that what he meant. Tried to tease out what he meant by being watched, or how do I feel when I get a certain glance. Being racialized. Yeah, being racialized, yeah. and so it's trying to understand. But he said he genuinely said that he, sometimes he feels uncomfortable expressing certain things. So his freedom of speech, he he feels is limited. And I said, well, why do you feel that? Is, it, is, it, is that self in that self imposed? And he he says sometimes it's something that's from the media, it's what what people tell him, all these things. This media that exists that there's a, a group of white people, a significant minority that feel that their freedom of expression is limited. And it's something that the, that the far right have now exploited and exploited well. So it's not just Tommy Robertson, Katie, Tom, Katie Hopkins does this. If you go to the, in America, the alt-right, the alt-right do this, do this a lot. So they say anyone that kind, of, that kind of prevents white people from being who they are, expressing themselves, is committing white genocide. So at a cultural level, even at a physical level. So when someone like Trump is speaking, and he's speaking to them, and he's saying, like, so Trump's trying to create alternative narratives. So the mainstream narrative is preventing him saying what he wants to say. So he says he creates his own narrative. So he said, that's fake news, so I'm going to express myself, because this society is oppressive. Multiculturalism is, is oppressive. Okay, but what about what you said earlier about thinking about freedom of speech, but, but with regards to harm? So I would say to you that I don't think it's freedom of speech to spout racism and they say 
well, but you saying to me that I can't be racist is is damaging my freedom of speech and it's silencing me. So surely examining that, what that means by harm. So if you're going to say, I think, and what they do say, like Nigel Farage has said in the past, that people from the Middle East are more likely to be terrorists and therefore we don't want them in our country. Like, you are now, by using your platform in the, within the establishment, within the media, you're now causing a woman, possibly, to have her hijab pulled off her head while she's standing at a zebra crossing. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, so it's like, you have to think about what are your words doing? And that's what I know what you mean. That's what's really difficult with these conversations, why it's blurry, because it's like... Oh, no, but I also thought, sorry, to go back to the Mandrush thing, I thought it was really interesting how loads of politicians who I would class as being, like, racist, or like, you know, like Jacob Rees-Mogg, people like that, um were like, oh, well, obviously I think the treatment of uh, the Windrush generation is abhorrent and what a terrible thing to do to British citizens who've contributed so much to our country. But so that next time you turn around and go, that's racist, he goes, but look what I said about the Windrush generation. Yeah. So, you know, like they're... I'm always side-eyeing those people. Like, yeah. Mm. It's like they, they know... The far right has always been very adept at manipulating media conversations and particularly at the moment where, you know in a world where Brexit happened and seemed to take the establishment by surprise, it feels like the establishment are going, oh, what have we been missing? Oh, it's that disenfranchised white working class we were worried about. Like, this is their revenge, which is, like, a very uh, specious analysis, mm. given Had what we know yeah. about, about actually it. who voted. <laughs> um so, yeah, I don't know. To bring it back to Tommy Robinson, is it Robertson or Robinson? Robinson. Robinson. So I, Tommy Robinson. I really yeah. like that you don't know his name. I was... I, was, I, I, <laughs> I like, I like <laughs> that. I was, I was kind of Don't give him a platform, mm. even though we are. Mm. I, was th- I was thinking, basically, the only way to combat this, for me, is to allow them to speak. Allow these people to speak. Now, I, like I said... But we'll speak where? Like, do you give so, him a slot on question So, time? no, I... Like, so, on the internet... So, so, Facebook at the moment are furiously and failing to remove the pictures of hate, 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 um, hate posts on Facebook yeah. or Instagram. But they've also been failing, not just from the far right, but also failing from a, a kind of radical Islamic point of view as well. Yeah. They've been failing for years. These extremists on all sides. So... The only way we can combat this. So once you start telling them, you, they, you start blocking their avenues, you create martyrs out of them. And it's, a, it's, it's almost like a kind of double-edged sword. But if you, if you don't give them the space, if we don't value that value, the value of free speech ourselves, and, and say, yeah, you are allowed to have your point of view and, and speak on these platforms, we create a problem for ourselves. But just on the Tommy Robinson case of him being arrested, mm-hmm. they're all saying... It's ridiculous. He's been arrested, but he was filming yeah. outside a court case that people were being people were anonymous people were being anonymized, and there were jurors walking past, listening to him speaking to his fans about. But that, and and so, see see your response there. Yeah. That's how we that's how we win. So you, we we engage them yeah. and we try to beat them with reason. Yeah. But by silencing them, by seeking to silence them, and not letting them not allow them on these platforms, we create a problem for ourselves. Because this is what's happened. In the, last, in the last two years I've been studying this, I've seen a group of people that were fringe and marginalised. Yeah, when become, I think about it now, when you first started, I was thinking about this the other day, when you first started your research, 
it was ones. it was not as big as this, mm. and now it is fucking now huge. I remember. I think it was like it was the Charleston riots or something, mm. and you were like, "Well, yeah, obviously that was going to happen." Tiso knew like the you uniforms knew it was going to happen. I know, but I was just like. And I remember everyone being really surprised, and I was like, well, Tuesday's been telling us about this for months now. So I just, it's like, it was horrible, but yeah, it's, it's, it, I, you, you've, you were ahead of the curve. It, it, <laughs> it upsets me to see that we've allowed these things to fester, and when they do fester, they manifest themselves in ways that you would never think. So the example I gave someone the other day, I said, look at the Windrush example. The Windrush now, it, it, you've expelled people. Now, that is a far-right BMP policy for years, repatriation Fucking was a hell. policy that's been oh like through the 1970s and 80s. That was their goal. And did you see well, that one, about it like, one of the people, like they said he was deported 25 years ago. Mm. 25 years ago. That is not a Brexit thing. That's that's not Theresa May's hostile environment. That's just everyday British government. So, But you've allowed that this racist environment I've to become like from a fringe group of people who we used to laugh at and fight. So we have, we're in New Cross now, so we had the Battle of Lewisham mm. in the 70s. We had in the 1930s the Battle of Cable Street. So Brit- London itself, London has a unique position in fighting fascists, but yet we've let a fascist party policy become government policy. And not just government policy, being acted out. Yeah. So this is, when you see stuff like, when you don't allow these people to speak, their policies manifest in different ways. So you have to give this, this forum, so we have to value this. And again, to paraphrase Mill, if you don't allow the truth to out, you, you allow dead dogmas to flourish. And our, our duty as people of, in university and academia is to question and to kind of, to kind of paraphrase, paraphrase Kant, to dare to know. We dare to know, we dare to question you. So that's what, yeah, that's what I try to do anyway. Saskia. What are you gonna? Where have you been? <laughs> Not what's annoyed you. Where have you been? Uh, yeah, so I've just come back from Finland, where I was staying. Um, I stayed with a friend who lives in Turku, which is Finland's second city, and I stayed with a friend who lives in Helsinki, which is the capital. Um, so this week, I'm not talking so much about something that's annoyed me, but more about uh, my experience of like being in Finland, um, given all the things that we talk about um, so frequently, both on and off the podcast. So we're yeah. Londoners as well. So we yeah, talk about so we're very London centric in our Yeah, analysis. yeah. So I think it's important given that we talk about mainly UK politics, British politics, and we talk about um we're all living in London, working in London, um, Tisa and I, and yeah, you were born in London. I was born in London, yeah. but I grew up in the Midlands, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, we, we are coming at it from a particular perspective, and also, you know, thinking about Brexit, obviously we've been kind of in the thick of it, um, being British citizens, but obviously this is like a story that's created shockwaves around the world, but particularly around Europe, so... And particularly because all three of us are people of colour, we examine diff- things like Brexit in different ways, like we're very much aware of who gets affect- directly affected yeah, by this stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it was, it's, I think Finland is a really interesting place for a British person to visit anyway, because uh, obviously we have this history as the coloniser, and we associate ourselves within Europe with, you know, France and Germany and Spain, uh, Italy and Greece, I think, more as holiday destinations. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like in terms of the kind of we're very like Western focused. And, you know, that's partly because 
some of those countries are our nearest neighbours and partly because they're the countries that had empires, so they're worth thinking about. Finland, on the other hand, exists, you know, it's bordering Russia and uh, Sweden and Norway, I think I'm right in saying, and has been a part of Sweden and it's been a part of Russia and it's only been independent since 1917, so they had their centenary as a country last year, which is, like, you know, seems crazy. Um... And, you know, that's still they still have this population of Finnish Swedes who make up 6% of the population, but as kind of a hangout of, a, of this colonial period when they were a part of Sweden. So these people have a disproportionate amount of kind of power and privilege and money and land and all those things. Um, and they still speak Swedish. Like, Swedish is one of the official languages of Finland, which is very weird because, actually, if you... Like, you do not ask people if they speak English in Finland. Like, I think they would just be like, um, I'm not stupid. I really... Like, everyone is bilingual. Which, as an English person, is like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> because in England, the people who speak languages are the children of migrants uh-huh. uh, from countries that don't speak English and rich people. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very, like, it makes you kind of rethink, like, how privilege and class manifest themselves in different countries. Also, Finland, you know, it's it's a Nordic country, um, but it's not in Scandinavia. So I think British people are very ignorant of what that means. But, like, Scandinavian countries are, like, uh, Sweden, uh, Norway, Denmark. Yeah, but I thought it was Scandinavian. No, but so those countries, Scandinavian, because they speak Scandinavian languages, and they can all understand each other. Right. So Swedish people can talk to uh, Norwegian people, who can talk to Danish people. Right. uh, In their different languages, still understand. Um, Finnish people have a completely different language. It's related to Estonian and Hungarian, and that's it. It's a really odd language. It's like, you know, complete, like it's a rural language. Mm -hmm. Um, Traditionally not the language of, like, culture and arts and things mm-hmm. like that so those things all used to happen in mm-hmm. Swedish mm-hmm. so now like obviously English is the language of trade and blah 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 and Finland as a small country needs to find a way to survive mm-hmm. and they're not going to be learning Russian because of the whole like <laughs> uh, kind of like slightly uncomfortable relationship they have with Russia I've been there before but I guess uh, I wasn't thinking so much about the kind of politics of race and racism and actually, I was really surprised by, like, pleasantly surprised how many people of colour I saw. Obviously, I was in the kind of bigger cities. Mm-hmm. And Helsinki only has about, I think it's 600,000 people. So it is not a very big city, but it is the capital. Um, and, you know, like, the stereotype of Finnish people is that they are blonde-haired and blue-eyed. And there are a lot of blonde people. Like, if you've never been to a Nordic country, it does kind of take you by surprise at first because you're like, oh, wow. And, like, if you see pictures... Like, if you see Nordic kids, you're like, do they all look the same? Yep, they all look the same. Because even though not everyone is blonde when they're adults, everyone is blonde when they're children. Oh, wow. So weird. Yeah, yeah. Of course, there are people of colour in Finland as well, even though they have a lot less migration than other Nordic countries. Tell us about that. Uh, so, yeah, Finland, I think it must, it must be partly to do with its history of being colonised, mm-hmm. uh, but it has a very, like, ungenerous attitude <laughs> towards migrants. So, like, uh, Sweden... Who's his name? Sweden the neighbour? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was about to say to the left. 
<laughs> his western oh. neighbour is uh, Sweden. Yeah, so Sweden's got like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of migrants and refugees. So if you remember the refugee crisis, which uh, arguably is still going on, but it's kind of dropped off everyone's... It's not newsworthy anymore, is it? No, because we've shut the borders. You know, the population of Sweden's increased massively, uh, but in Finland they've let in like 7,000 people, which is even worse than the UK. So, you know, something to think about. That's interesting. Um... But obviously, it is an attractive country to go to in that it has an amazing welfare state. Like, everyone I was staying with, so Laura was doing her bachelor's for a very long time. Um, and I remember last time I was there, her going, oh, yes, you know, we've got this, like, horrible right-wing government in and they're only going to let people have five years free university education. <laughs> what? And I was like... Boo-hoo! Five years! Oh, what a shame. She said that to you. I know! Well, I mean, yeah, it was... Yeah, it was quite funny. It's really interesting what you say about, like, who you're visualising in Finland and being pleasantly surprised, because I interviewed someone recently who's a black guy who lives in Berlin, and um, his name's Musa Okwonga, and he's a poet and a musician. He's amazing. And he was telling me about how when you go and live in Europe, you choose your racism. He said, you choose your racism based on particular attitudes that you've read about or that you possibly think is associated with those areas. So when I think about what I would describe as Scandinavian countries, even though you've just told us Finland isn't Scandinavian, <laughs> I would not, it would not be first on my list to visit. But like... Is, do I need to broaden my horizons a little bit more and think actually places like this are, I'm not going to be stared at loads? Like I was really well. I mean, yeah. As a caveat to that, I was that Finnish people stare a lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> like a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. No, but as in they just are big starers. Like so, they're really like culturally incredibly socially awkward. Like right. the first time I went, my friend Laura, both her housemate and her boyfriend couldn't make eye contact. Right. Like, it was extraordinary. They were just so awkward and shy. I was like, I have never come across this before. Like, you know, there are people who struggle with eye contact, but this is, like, a cultural thing. Yeah. And, like, people are very much, like, not touchy-feely. Like, if you go to someone's house, like, in the UK, people offer you a cup of tea. Yeah. That's not really a thing. If you offer to pay for someone, they're like, why would you pay for me? What have you done? I don't know, and it was really really interesting. I was talking to Laura about this because she was saying that she read some um, academic article by a Finnish guy who went to Britain to give a a talk. And she said that um, it was an example about cultural, like, gift-giving in cultures. And he was saying, like, you know, he went to the pub afterwards and everyone was buying rounds. And he was like, coming out in like a cold sweat because he was like I don't know what the like fit or like what's the polite thing here like do I then have to buy everyone a drink but that's going to be so, so expensive and I don't know what to do and then he was like asking people like should I be buying drinks now and they're like no you're the guest and he was to buy around no I know like they, but they just it's just not a yeah, thing yeah, yeah, so yeah, like, it's cultural differences yeah they're important to remember definitely. yeah it is yeah, a yeah, big yeah. cultural difference but yeah so despite this they're big starers so like I have quite a loud voice and like a really loud laugh um, and it, when I laughed like the whole street would turn around and be like 
So I actually stopped noticing people staring pretty quickly because okay. I was just like, whatever, everyone's going to look at me and I just don't really care. Oh, really? But obviously I'm not black, so right. I don't know. And, you know, obviously I'm there as a tourist and I don't, I didn't speak to any... No, I did speak to people of colour, mm-hmm. but the only person of colour I spoke to was pretty right-wing, so... Right. Okay. <laughs> I, I was going to ask you, so given the way... Well, given its proximity to Russia... And given the wave of like nationalism that's kind of sweeping across Europe, mm. did you get a sense of that there? Because yeah. if no. no, not from people. No, no from but like symbols. From, so if because what's happening, especially around that around the border towards Russia, Ukraine. coming down to Ukraine, but also you're you're seeing develop nationalist parties and with quite strong followings and the idea that, Hungry, yeah. that these people need to defend things that their Finnishness, their identity. So there's a party called the True Finns, <laughs> which is all about the Finns as like an ethnic group yep. and how they need to protect. Like there are kind of like uh, vigilante groups that go around oh. beating people up. <gasps> so I'm, yeah, when I say that I was pleasantly surprised, I was more talking about like... Visual it, Visually, yeah. there are black people <laughs> and, you know, or like people of colour live in Finland. It is their home, yep. you know, and they, like Laura was saying that um, there's this, like in the kind of lexicon of like people, the way people of colour talk about themselves is they talk about being first generation Finnish. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that is not a thing in the UK. You would never say, oh, I'm first generation English. Wow. Like, they're trying to kind of challenge the idea of being brown means being a migrant. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's quite interesting because I give in... Given, I suppose, in my head, how I've kind of t- t- termed it is like the Brexit contagion. So once Brexit happened, even though these movements have been in place for a long time in all these countries, they've all kind of been kick-started into, into life again. The idea that identity, whatever the identity is, so the best example I've kind of understand is, for me, is Hungary. How they've kind of taken the idea that they're, they're defenders of Europe and it, this is their identity. Well, I think this is interesting because Hungary, you know, has this whole thing about policing their border. Mm -hmm. And I think Finland is in a different position because it borders Russia and then other European countries. Obviously, it doesn't have that thing of Hungary of, like, trying to, like, gun down migrants. Yeah, keeping out the the swarms, um, as David Cameron would say. I was thinking about this in terms of, like, Finland joining the EU. Like... Parties in Finland will say things like we are pro-EU and pro-NATO because Finland's not a member of NATO and that is specifically because it doesn't want to piss Russia off. Mm. I was telling uh, you guys just now, like, Russification is the idea of trying to turn a colonised group of people, like, to become more like the dominant Mm. uh, nation. Finnification is a word that means uh, appeasing the dominant, like, becoming more like the dominant group to appease them. So Finland definitely has traditionally had a policy of trying to please Russia because they feel very vulnerable. Like there was a war on their border and they lost a big chunk of Finland. And there's this kind of like romantic idea of like, you know, we need to go back to, I can't remember what it's called. I think it's called like Great Finland or something. Um, Get that back. Yeah, Yeah. reclaim this like chunk of land and um, the one of the kind of national foods is called a Carillion pie and it looks like a vagina and it's like um, a kind of I don't know like sort of savoury like 
bready pastry stuff with rice porridge in the middle. It's so tasty. Uh, Tuso's making a face like, it's disgusting. It's <laughs> so good. Um, but it comes from that area. And I wonder if the reason it became a kind of national food oh, is simple. because it was like these displaced yeah. Finns yeah, who were pushed into kind of regular Finland as it now is. So yeah, like, you know, there's that kind of, anti- you know, like Finland would not, be very able to resist Russia on its own. Like, they no. still have national service. Men, only men, for some reason, have to do national service. Wow. Because they, you know, it's a new country. What's national service? Because there will be some people that don't oh, know it is. Yeah, national service is that um, it depends on the country, but in the case of Finland, it's all men between the ages of 18 and 30, I think, have to spend six months or a year serving their country, either in the army or if they're pacifists, then they... Uh, go and do kind of government work mm-hmm. um, and it was really bizarre we saw like tanks and stuff in Helsinki oh, like God, being horrible. driven by children like you know these 18 year old boys are like oh my god I would not trust that <laughs> but it's because yeah like they they still need so present danger to them still yeah and like my friend was saying you know they've done tests on like how long would Finland be able to resist the Russian invasion apparently two days which is more than I was expecting <laughs> but obviously you know not being a part of NATO joining NATO but joining NATO now would be seen by Russia as an act of yeah, aggression it, it, it'd be what act of war they would yeah war, so like Estonia when they joined Europe obviously Russia was furious and you know Estonia has NATO like British troops along mm. the border you know Finland I think would be incredibly averse to doing that because that is yeah, yeah. obviously Putin would be well pissed off <laughs> it'd be like kind of like the Cuban missile crisis all over again mm. like you've got places stationed to us exactly exactly yeah. so yeah it's really to bring it back to kind of the Brexit thing it was re- it's really interesting place to be because it's like going to the other end of Europe because, you know, I've been to Portugal, which is at one end of Europe, but obviously Portugal borders, like, the Atlantic mm-hmm. Ocean, whereas this is, like, rubbing right up against a, a different superpower, which Europe is kind of trying to defend itself against. Well, I think it's quite interesting you say that. So when I look at the history of Europe, this, this is where all the battles happen because you're all it's an interlad, interlocking landmass mm. of different borders and principalities, and they always fight. They always will fight, and given the resurgence and the dominance of nationalism, it makes that notion of fighting happen all over again. And again, I think people miss this from Brexit. So, it, since the EU's formation until until now, no European powers fought each other since 1945. This has been the way. No European powers fought each other the way they did, so it worked. But yet, people want to go back to the antagonistic, nationalistic model of the pre pre EU days. I mean, but what is interesting about this as well is the whole Nordic thing of mm-hmm. kind of uh, there's this sort of romantic idea of like a Nordic people and <laughs> white people, of course. <laughs> Meaning, you know, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, mm-hmm. tall, you know, like <laughs> racialized group. Mm-hmm. You know, there are all sorts of benefits of being in a Nordic country that is supported by other Nordic countries. So you can get nationality of another Nordic country within two years. Um, You obviously get, like, incredibly good, like, welfare benefits. You know, there's all sorts of these kind of rights and privileges that come from being Nordic. Even Trump Mm -hmm. said the immigrants that he would like 
of the northern of countries. Of course. And this, but even in the far right, the currency is... I mean, the Nazis <laughs> flipping love. Like, Sweden was yeah. on appease the Nazis. And, like, Finland... I was, I was talking to someone about this. It's quite interesting. I think Finland supported Hitler. But then from Finland's point of view, it was either Hitler or Stalin... Mm. And to them, yeah. they were like, obviously, we're not going to support the Russians because they'd just been a Russian colony. And, like, obviously putting it in that context... Like, I don't know, I think it's just... It's hard to imagine, I think, from an English perspective, where yeah. we're always the aggressors, we're always the dominant one, we're always the one taking over other people's lands. Yeah. How different the mentality is... Of the colonised. Of the colon... Not just yeah. colonised, but vulnerable. Yeah. Like... Yeah. Finland is still vulnerable. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a very, you know, whereas, like, Ireland, I think, although it was an English colony for 800 years, I mean, Northern Ireland, obviously, is still disputed, but Ireland, I think, is able to sort of recover in a different way because it's very unlikely that England will invade anytime soon. Right, yeah, makes sense. Whereas for Finland, it's They're like, still on well... Yeah, it could happen. It could, like, you know, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. Yeah. So, yeah. It was interesting. And, like, lots of people were asking me, like, kind of the British perspective of Brexit. And, like, you know, you were just saying, like, oh, you know, people saying they're proud to be British or proud to be English. I felt so ashamed because from a European perspective, you know, we were talking about, like, the UN report saying that racism has massively risen across Europe following Mm -hmm. Brexit. I was, like, I feel really embarrassed to be kind of the representative of a country That's that has so thoughtlessly unleashed this on mm-hmm. the rest like of the, yeah you know and like obviously the refugee crisis is something that partly precipitated uh, certain Brexit debates and that is something I think the whole of Europe is definitely responsible for in terms of like racism yeah. and stuff but yeah I felt really um, just like deeply ashamed actually yeah and someone said to me I was going to come and do an exchange in the UK for university, but then Brexit happened, and I thought, fuck you. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I can sympathise. <laughs> can we end on a positive note? Um, go to Finland. Yeah. Oh, my God. It is so great. <laughs> the booze is really expensive. Is it's, it? But, oh, booze expensive. Wow. So, so that's yeah. the reason why I wouldn't go. So like, I'm is, not an alcoholic, but I like drinking, especially when I'm on holiday. This is a really big cultural <laughs> thing. Uh, state monopoly on alcohol. You can only buy alcohol above 5.5% in state-controlled alcohol shops. And it was really funny because my friends were both Laura and Marcus, who don't know each other um, and like, are not related to each other in any way, told me separately, like, oh, it's terrible. You only used to be able to buy 4.7% alcohol in supermarkets, and now you can buy 5.7% alcohol. And this is terrible because, you know, alcoholism is a really big problem. And then Marcus works on these cruise ships, which go to the Orland Islands, because the Orland Islands like a tax haven. They have different uh, laws. And so you can buy tax-free booze on the cruise ships. And in their house, they have this huge, like, crates and crates of alcohol, like, huge bottles of schnapps and stuff. And I was like, oh, where's that from? And he was like, oh, we got it from the boat, half price. And I was like, what, so the state can't sell hard alcohol, but you can buy it on the cheap on the boat. Oh, wow. So, you know, like, but yeah, they the alcohol culture is, basically everyone drinks a lot, and the state's attitude to it is, you need to stop people drinking a lot, unlike the British attitude, which is just sell it cheaper. <laughs> Tax it. Tax it. Um, 
Well, no, their tax is insane. Their tax is way higher. Oh, okay. You know, you're not allowed to discount alcohol in supermarkets. Anyway, my point is, go to Finland because the nature is incredible and you can go walk in forests, like, everywhere. And Helsinki is, like, by the sea. And it's a really chilled, lovely city. And, like, it just doesn't have so many people in it. And I don't mean that in a racist, like, there are swarms of people in London. I just mean, like, from a personal space point of view. Yeah. There's loads of space. And yeah. the air is clean. And they don't have as so much pollution. Yeah. And their education system is incredible. Mm-hmm. And, like, the kind of class markers that you have here in terms of education, like having a master's degree, being able to speak a foreign language, playing a classical instrument, like, those are actually accessible to people in Finland when you don't have any money. Oh, wow. Having a good education is not based on class. You're right. They teach their teachers. The teachers have to have a master's degree. They study for five years to become a teacher. Mm. Like, stuff like that. Having a decent welfare state. Yeah. It makes a difference. But they pay for it. They, they, pay pay for for it, yeah, they pay for it, but, but they get it back as well. Yeah, but uh, the people here want to pay for it. This <laughs> is, is definitely, right? yeah. they don't want to pay for it. And also, you know, like stuff like VAT is only 12% because they they tax progressively. Mm-hmm. Like VAT is a regressive tax. Shall we all just move there? Let's all just move to Finland and then it won't be so white. Wait, wait. <laughs> what they, have they got McDonald's? They have McDonald's. Yeah, okay, let's go. And they've got loads of McDonald's. <laughs> So our next podcast will come to you from Finland. Hopefully. <laughs> You've been listening to Surviving Society with Chantelle, Saskia and Tiso. We're back every few weeks. So don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Please rate us. <laughs>